Welcome to the Transit Matters Podcast, episode 24. On today's episode, we are pleased to be joined by former Secretary of Transportation and MBTA General Manager Rich Davey to talk about some of the pressing issues on the MBTA today, uh, how to deal with everything ranging from debt to fares to investment and everything affecting you, dear MBTA rider. Transit Matters is a nonprofit organization advocating for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transit in and around Boston. It's part of our vision to repair, upgrade, and expand the transit network, uh, the MBTA. We aim to elevate the conversation around transit issues through informed planning and critical analysis, uh, showing why transit matters and how we get there from here. My name is Jeremy Mendelson. I'm a geographer, transit service planner, and a longtime Boston transportation advocate. Uh, I co-founded Transit Matters because uh, nobody else was doing it, and somebody needs to speak up for making the T everything that it can be. And I'm Mark Abunya. I'm our communications and social media manager. By day, I'm an IT systems administrator, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of transit, geeking out over transit celebrities like Rich Davey, our guest today, governance, policy, and civic engagement. Hi, I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as an attorney, but in my free time, I like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. Hi, I'm Jared. I'm the newest board member here at Transit Matters. I'm from Oklahoma City uh, by way of Houston and Cincinnati. I work on community revitalization and volunteerism with AmeriCorps, and my passion is where equity, transit, and housing meet. Cool. Excellent. And our guest today is uh, Rich Davey, former uh, Secretary of Transportation for the Commonwealth between 2011 and 2014. Uh, Rich uh, began his – I did a little internet search, Rich. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Began his <laughs> career – I knew you were an attorney. Began his career as a trial attorney with the Department of Justice. That's true. And then went into private practice, I'm assuming litigation. That's true. Still, okay. Uh, joined uh, the, the NBCR uh, in 2002, became general counsel in 2003. Deputy General, correct me if I get anything wrong here, Deputy General Manager in 2007 and General Manager in 2008. And I believe as Deputy General Manager, you did the North Side commuter rail? Um, No, uh, both actually, so both sides, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, became a GM for the MBTA in 2010 until September 2011 when he then was appointed by Governor Patrick as Secretary of Transportation. Correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I was there actually at the, the round table that he convened the day before he became... Uh, general manager. So I, I feel, was so bold. I was yeah. convening meetings before I was officially announced. That's how <laughs> passionate I was to get. So thank going. you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in today. I mean, this is a pleasure, and uh, we're we're really excited to talk about some of the issues that uh, that we have uh, harming us uh, or uh, <laughs> or uh, helping us uh, on a daily basis. So yeah. Well, we thought we'd start well, out with some, you know, allowing you to give some reflections uh, sure. as you've had, you know, months to think about this. Um, you know. Yeah. You've hit you as as I just rattled off. You had several several jobs in transportation, um, all here in, uh, in in New England. And I was wondering, you know, which which one of those jobs did you enjoy the most? Running the MBTA. Um, I you know I'm still got hopefully twenty thirty years left in my career, but I think when I look back on my career, the T will be if not the top job I ever had, one of the top jobs. And the reason, um, as I've told folks and reflected, is is maybe best summed up. In a story I tell from time to time, which is when I became general manager, my parents, I grew up in Randolph, so just south of Boston, um, took the T to high school. I went to BC High. So used to take the red line and the 240 bus um, back home. And when I became general manager, my parents gave me a clock that said the words, you're only as good as your last rush hour. <laughs> so these are my parents judging me twice a day. Forget about the rest of the 1.3 million people that rode the T every day. And I tell this story because... 
the great thing about the T was it was both a day-to-day operations. You had to deliver on a regular basis, and you could dream big. You could have a vision. And I think if I were in a job that I had to do one or the other, I would be unsatisfied. But if you can do both, if you can think about where what you care about should be in 10 or 20 years, whether it be your state or your city or your family, whatever you're passionate about, and be on the clock to deliver on a regular basis and see the fruits of your labor, um, that was pretty special. And so I think the T, although I loved being secretary, I loved running commuter rail, uh, the T had this unique blend. And the T is a lot like the Red Sox in town. Everybody's got an opinion, right? And <laughs> everyone has a story, good and bad. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a unifying theme, I think, for a Bostonian. It's much like the weather. Uh, you can talk about the weather today. You can talk about your commute or the MBTA. And so for some people, I think that's intimidating, um, but I loved it. That's what I loved about it. Well, I mean, you're still a relatively young guy. You never know. That job tends to come open uh, relatively <laughs> frequently. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I think it is open right now, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Poor Frank. Poor Frank DePaula. He's there. He's there. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm uh, actually surprised uh, and, and excited to hear you say that you felt like you were able to think uh, broadly and narrowly mm-hmm. at the same time there because I think one of the concerns that we have is that uh, the folks at the T really don't have a chance to look up from their work, you know, it's from true. the day to day and whatever, you know, whatever breakdown happened on whichever line today. It's true. No, it's very true. And and because there's so much pressure, be it from customers, from the media, social media, I think, has really changed um, uh, both how government agencies respond and people's um, immediate need to be gratified, right, with an answer or, or, or just shouting out into the wilderness that they're upset. And so um, it is hard for the staff. Who, no one is calling the staff and saying, hey, where's my 20-year plan? I never did that. But people would call and say, hey, where's that bus or why is the silver line broken down today? Or even when we were chatting earlier today uh, with you guys before we came on the air, you all had sort of snippets of your commute either today or yesterday or the day before. <laughs> you weren't saying, you know, where's that 25-year capital plan from the T, right? Um, and so this, there's a lot of pressure on the staff to continue to focus on today, tomorrow, mm-hmm. next week, the service. Um, as opposed to thinking about the future. And I think that's in part why the T is where it is, which is there's been so much political pressure on the T to deliver today and not really deliver for tomorrow. And so, you know, I think we did, and I think the current administration as well is trying to change that. uh, But that's been a real challenge for the team there. Well, you know, so uh, I, I think if you do, do go back and look in our Twitter feeds, you'll see quite yes. a bit of tweeting about uh, more than a five-year CIP is one of the things that we've been uh, pounding away at, which why, why we're glad to see that there's the Focus 40 uh, coming come to, yeah. for, to fruition, because we do feel like uh, – and did, did the five-year plans, did that start while you were there, or was that right before you? No, so the T's had five-year CIPs mm-hmm. before I got there. MassDOT started five-year CIPs um, when I became secretary, given um, – what the MBTA had done, and public hearings, by the way, MassDOT was putting out capital plans without asking the public what it yep. thought. Um, and then in my final, I guess my final full year in 2013, we put out a 10-year way forward plan for all of transportation across Massachusetts, including the T, and how it would be funded. You know, the T's capital plan, I think, really lists um, a set of projects, not necessarily priorities, but a set of projects, wants and desires, and then the constraints. I think what what the T needs to do, and again, I think we set the tone, and I think the current administration is continuing it, is, all right, here are the needs, here are the wants, here are the priorities, how you prioritize those, and then here, here's what we see as the resources to uh, invest, and here are the consequences, right? I mean, we talked earlier about the red line. I, I think that, and 
you know, and there's been a story floating around the last couple of days about the capacity in the red line right now. I did not have an appreciation until we started digging in for the Olympics what the real capacity constraints were for the red line over the next 10 or 15 years, just with natural growth. And that's a huge challenge. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's even being contemplated right now in terms of a funding priority. Do you look at an upgrade of the signal system? Do you go to eight-car trains? Do you, you know, look at other connections to get people off the red line potentially and onto other com- – that stuff's not happening, or at least it wasn't happening. Hopefully it's going to happen as part of uh, thinking, you know, to 2040, as you mentioned. And when you're, and when you're doing these capital plans going from five years to ten years and, you know, we're looking at um, 25 years, I guess um, – where's that vision coming from? Do you feel like it's more on uh, MassDOT and, and the T or is that on you know the governor or the legislature? It seems like that's one of the issues we have in the Commonwealth is who yeah. is responsible for having the vision? Who's who's leading? Yeah, well, it's uh, over time, over history, I think it's been a combination of all the constituencies and stakeholders that you, you just mentioned. Um, you know, I think part of it for the T has been um, there's been so much focus on completing um, – legal requirements, right? Mm-hmm. And so the T's expansion over the last 15, 20 years has has already been dictated to it, right? So whether it was the expansion of commuter rail, the Greenbush line, uh, the Green Line extension, you know, the T has had really no choice in these. These have been dictated by them to them. And then, um, you know, as you guys know, and, and perhaps some of your listeners don't know, you know, the T has spent somewhere between 500 and a billion dollars in the last 10 years on upgrading its access- accessibility at its stations, right? And so, you know, Government Center will be open presumably in a couple months. It's a great project. It's going to look really nice. But the principal reason to do that was to make it accessible. And again, that was a lawsuit. And so the T's strategic plan has really been gravitating from legal requirement to legal requirement. Then you've got the political elements. Um, you know, there are folks who love new, shiny projects. You know, uh, installing new, updated signal systems and rail is not sexy. You can't do ribbon cuttings for those, but new stations are. And so uh, projects like Assembly Square, again, a great project, the new Orange Line T station. Um, but, you know, all things being equal, is would that have been the top priority if you were really looking at what the T's needs were? Probably not. It's a great project for Somerville, but... Um, so I think you've got the legal requirements, you know, what is the T required to do or, or they'll be out of com- some kind of compliance, and then the political. And then, then after that is where you then get to the nuts and bolts, let's fix the red line tunnel slab issue, let's, you know, install third rail heaters this past summer because we had a terrible winter. And so, again, I having spent a lot of time knowing how these decisions are made, it, it's unfortunate that the T's you know, decision-making has been really restricted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so we've had we've had former Transportation Secretary uh, James Aloisi on the program, but we've never yes. had somebody who's held both the position of general manager and the MB- and, and Secretary of Transportation. There are only a few of us that have survived <laughs> both those jobs. I think Dan Grabowskis was one. Yep, and that's right. Pat Moynihan was another. I think I think Grabowskis is now in Hawaii. He is. So. He is exactly. <laughs> yeah. He's he's no, doing no, literally. Well. He's he's that's, in Hawaii. No, that's that's right. yep. He's running the heart uh, system. He's a great guy. Yep. And um and the current general manager Frank DePaulo was acting secretary and now yep. general manager. So yeah, there's you and usually it's unusual. Most folks went from secretary to GM, not the route I went, which was. GM to secretary. <laughs> you become more passionate about the tea the more you m- the more you hear about it and every yeah. single report that gets bubbled up to you. Yeah. Uh, so right. can you talk a little bit more about the stresses and struggles? 
that the, that MassDOT and, and maybe its predecessors have, have had to deal with, both operational and political, now that you are free from the system to, and to voice sure. your own opinion? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Um, well, a few things. I think, one, the organizational reform that um, did occur and is continuing to occur was really important. So I always told a joke that prior to MassDOT reform, prior to MassDOT being formed, which started in 2009, you know, you had Massport and the T and the Turnpike Authority and the Highway Division, all of whom had different organizational structures and different chiefs. And the four of them generally didn't talk to each other, usually fought amongst one another. You know, one Massport chairman actually ran against Governor Dukakis and beat him for governor back in the 1970s. These were highly political jobs. And I would I would joke and say the only time the four of them were in the room together, one was dead and the other three were at his wake. Just making sure that he was dead, <laughs> like, ah, just to check the body. Um, now with reform, you know, all of it really flows up through the secretary. So the general manager of the T reports to the secretary. The highway division is now consolidated, and the person reports up to the secretary. And the secretary now sits in the Massport board. And so you can do things like uh, free Silver Line service from from Logan Airport. You can have the highway division and the T work more closely together on projects like you know the Longfellow Bridge, which you know up until this weekend was going pretty well. They they've got some bumps now because of speed restrictions, but um, but that's a huge project for both uh, the highway department and for the T. So I think the um, tone has been set that uh, the agencies. The alphabet soup of agencies knows they have to be responsive to their customers. And so I think that's a good thing that has really occurred and is still occurring now as a result of transportation reform. You know, I think the stresses um, that the T has, uh, to answer your, your sort of the other part of your question, is what we talked about is there's always a um, constituency, a political constituency for a project, um, and there's always pressure on the T to build something new. But the maintenance side, the state of good repair side, right. which is a huge challenge for the T, um, is not something that has a natural constituency. And I think you know one of the things that you guys are doing so well is trying to build the, I think the knowledge for folks to say, you know what, before we build something new, we really need to be focused on, hey, you know those red line trains were built in 1969. They're the oldest running trains in America. We need new subway cars. Um, you know, we need investment in our signal system because we know that's the way to get more reliability in, in, in trains. You know, there are other ways to make improvements, customer improvements, like countdown signs and information that don't cost a lot that can continue to move forward. But there are really big, big projects need to happen to make sure the T doesn't fail on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, you spent a lot of time um – Going back and forth to the legislature, uh, asking for money, I did. Trying, trying to sell, I'm taking the tea, ironically, uh, <laughs> right? Usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, trying to trying to sell uh, Governor Patrick's um, a vision of of more funding for the tea, as well as going uh, all over the Commonwealth, um, listening to people's thoughts on this. Um, but so I, w- I wonder, what was your impression, uh, or what, what did you feel like the reception was with the legislature, and mm-hmm. and did how did how did you feel like the legislature really? talked about the T and the funding for the T, you know, behind closed doors or what kind of things did did, did they tell you that maybe we don't hear sure. um, even through the newspapers? Well, I, I think, you know, being respectful of the legislature that the legislature, you know, legislative bodies as a general matter, and I think we've seen this in other states and in Washington, usually only act if there's crisis or opportunity, right? And so um, I think that's just unfortunately the nature of of the legislative process. Um, And whether it be it's because it's robust debate or whether it's because, um, you know, 
the legislature seems to have a sort of centralized power structure. Um, it was hard to get people, I think, to understand um, exactly what the T's challenges were. And, and, and we tend to focus on who's responsible and why, and, and that doesn't actually solve any problems, right? Um, it's, okay, but what's the path forward? And so with the legislature, um, you know, they really started to pay attention to the T's funding crisis when we had 32 fair increase in service cut hearings now a couple of years ago. I do chuckle the T is having, you know, 10 hearings in the next, you know, couple of weeks. And, oh, my goodness, that might be tough. I mean, we had 32. And John Davis, who It was seemed the, like it was never going to end. Well, and, we, <laughs> and, and let me give you a little secret. We did it on purpose. And we did it on purpose because statutorily, I think we were required to have two hearings, and I think the T usually had six or seven. And we knew that driving people out to hear how bad it was and how much, you know, how restricted the T was in the kinds of fixes it could employ, cutting, you know, cutting service, raising fares, you know, changing the operating cost structure, um, or giving, you know, some additional reform tools, which this legislature has, has given to this current administration, was really the only way you could get to. Um, that was, was what the T had uh, uh, available to it. So we had 32 hearings. We had 6,000 people come. 6,000 people came, and another 6,000 wrote to us. Uh, it was, you know, people were galvanized. They were angry. Um, and we took that to the legislature. And the legislators, many of them came to those hearings. And so they were able to see very viscerally um, how upset people were. And I think that was the real impetus to get the legislature to act. There was a crisis. Um, it wasn't created because it existed. I think we just accentuated it to say to folks, no, this is a real problem. Um, you know, here are our options, and we're being, you know, completely candid with you. When it came to selling the governor's, you know, transportation plan, um, it was more than just the T. You know, once you get outside of 128, uh, there's a lot of resentment around the state about the MBTA. You know, people in Berkshire County and the Cape and, and you know, Worcester County feel like they are paying – an unfair share of their tax dollars uh, to the MBTA. Um, and I think it's both perception and reality, to be candid. Uh, and so, and there are transportation needs all across the state. And so our charge then was to go across the state and to figure out how we could make it a, uh, if we were to raise revenues, how we could fairly uh, and appropriately um, use those revenues to lift all of transportation around the Commonwealth, not just the MBTA. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we didn't, get all the money we wanted. Uh, it's certainly get all the money we needed. Uh, but I am proud. You know, we, we raised the gas tax for the first time in 23 years. Um, three cents, but um, uh, probably a missed opportunity in terms of raising it maybe a little more given where gas prices are today. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but you know, proud that we were able to get that done. What do, what do you think the disconnect was? Because I, I was working <clears throat> as a legislative, um, a legislative council intern in mm -hmm. the Senate at that point. And you know the, the polls and uh, a lot of the the letters or you know constituent contacts mm -hmm. I was seeing was actually pretty supportive of if you give us a better transportation system yeah. we're willing to pay for it and go along with the governor's plan and I I felt like when it, it that sort of landed with a thud in the legislature that they they were saying you know begrudgingly we'll, we'll admit that there's an issue but we'll give you you know thirty thirty to fifty percent of what you what you're asking for yeah. even though the people seem to be interested in, in doing more you know remember Governor Patrick proposed raising the gas tax by nineteen cents in two thousand and nine I think so I think was, I remember that yeah, yeah so it was before I was in um, uh, in, in state government, and that was a resounding thud. Um, the governor then um, came back with a plan a few years later to uh, 
raise the income tax, lower the sales tax, and to make the tax code in Massachusetts just generally more progressive. So if you were making $50,000 or less, you would actually do better under that plan. If you were making between fifty and like 100000 basically come out even. Um, and, and you can't do a graduated income tax in Massachusetts. It's prohibited by the state constitution. But this was about as close as you could get to having a more progressive tax structure. Um, and that landed with a resounding, resounding thud um, and with the legislature. And the legislature's alternative was to raise the gas tax by ultimately it proposed three cents. You know, and I, I always felt like that was sort of a power a power struggle between the yeah. legislature and the governor as opposed to really the merits of, of the issue. Did I, th- I think that's probably right. You know, the, the, the governor's relationship with the legislature, I think, was um, um, – you know, strong to some extent and challenged another, to another extent um, for a couple of reasons. You know, one, the, he, the governor was an outsider, you know, not from the legislature himself, um, his first elected office. Um, and so I think that made sometimes the language between the executive branch and, and the legislature more strained than it should have been. Um, I also think, too, that, um, you know, trying to figure out a way to give the legislature, I don't want to say cover, but, you know, more time and information to socialize that proposal would have been probably constructive. Um, but it's also hard. You know, the discretion um, in government uh, among uh, leaders uh, sometimes was tested, I think, at the executive level and also at the, the leadership level in the House and the Senate, too. So um, that made for, you know, conversations and just even floating ideas, proposals hard because it might show up on the front page of the globe. And, you know, at the end of the day, policy is is crafted, compromises are crafted, um, I think, uh, with some discretion uh, among leaders. Um, whether we like that or not, I think that's the art of politics. It's discretion and it's compromise. And I think that was hard to do. And it was at the end of his second term. People knew he was not running again. And so I think there's a, a real power to a sitting governor who's has some, you know, gravitas over a period of time where legislators would pay uh, probably more attention uh, to the governor. And obviously his proposal came out, you know, not quite two years left in his term and and they acted on it less than 18 months. So that that didn't help either. Well, I know we've been in real political junkie territory here. So I'll just ask one more question about that legislative session and then we'll we'll not belabor the point any further. (laughs) What, you know, when I was reading through um, the the amendments um, to the Mm -hmm. budget that year and and the proposal for uh, funding of the MBTA, I, I never caught the 10% increase that got slipped in there. And, of, sure. course, of course, I obviously was not participating in the conference committee. You know, sure. it's, it's only a small group of people, and I wasn't sitting in the caucus. <clears throat> but uh, but I, I never caught that, and I didn't um, catch any whiff of anybody else mm-hmm. thinking that that's what happened. Did you uh, notice that th- that happened? Well, I can tell you we absolutely noticed the language uh, because I, I – I noticed the word annual, but it didn't yes. occur to me that that's what the intent so, was. So let me tell you. So as a general matter, um, we opposed that language. And you know, my pitch to the legislature was you, know, you attended some fair hearings. You didn't like going to those fair hearings. You shouldn't get into the business of dictating to the MBTA how much they should or should not raise because the problem that will occur is the T will be back to you more quickly uh, for revenue – um, if their uh, their hands are tied, so that obviously the argument didn't win the day. Um, the, where the five percent came from, and you know I haven't looked at the statute carefully, but I, I'm fairly certain of what the intent was. And it, the intent was um, 
to cap the fares at 5% every other year. And the reason I'm convinced of that is because um, in our financial pro forma that we gave the legislature, um, a 10-year financial pro forma for the MBTA showing how it could be um, at least operationally solvent, that um, we were uh, assuming that the T would raise fares every other year by 5%. We also assumed, by the way, tolls were going to go up by 5% every other year, and registry fees were going to go up 10% every five years. And so we wanted a mix of um, revenues, uh, and you know, frankly, to the legislature in particular, you know, if if others around the state are feeling like they're contributing, at least we could say, but on a regular basis, T riders will also contribute their fair share in a form of a of a regular fair increase. And I think that's been the challenge of the T. They've gone several years without a fair increase, and then a big one, and it's a pretty big shock. So our theory was if we do this on a regular basis, 2.5% every year, basically the inflation, or 5% every other year, it's a consistent, probably small enough, edible enough, if you will, bite for um, for our customers. Um, where you know the new interpretation is 10%, you know, lawyers can probably argue that. You and I are lawyers. We could argue that. But I can surely tell you the intent was adopted from our 10-year pro forma, which assumed a 5% increase every two years. That is that is good information, and I will I will let let it rest at that <laughs> yeah, from right. here yeah, on out. Absolutely. Well, I mean, so, so going back to uh, I don't want to go into too much into governance myself. I know that that's my personal interest is sure. is regional governance. But uh, I mean, going back to some of the the topics that we had uh, pre-selected here, uh, some inter- internal organizational issues that I know that you were a particular champion of. Uh, one of the most memorable. Uh, campaigns that you had was the uh, the button campaign that you had where you had some of your staffers where uh, the but it's always been this way or we've always done it that way we've with always the, the done it this way yes. yeah the most oft used phrase in government which drives me crazy <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, I, I had to wear that button uh, good 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 yeah because he was uh, yeah um, Jeremy was uh, you you are a former service planner, or I guess you are still a service planner in many respects. Yeah, uh, both of those I believe would be correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, actually, one of the one of the articles that I came across a couple of years ago was yeah. a governing article on some of the issues about uh, uh, the squeeze at the top, the pub- public mm-hmm. sector executive sque- pay squeeze at the top, um, attracting and retaining talent. Uh, and actually, we were we were invited as guests to the. Boston Chamber of Commerce uh, governance. Uh, what was it? A governance forum or government government transportation in- finance transportation mm-hmm. finance yeah. government interest forum. Uh, and one of the one of the, the 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 topics that came up was the fact that uh, we need management and especially folks at the top who uh, can be the, uh, the 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 for all intents and purposes, the the gronks of of the of transit mm-hmm. uh, with the pay to match because I mean we'll never we'll never attract that kind. I of I think talent. what they said is we want to have championship teams. We want to have championship you know, we wanna, teams. We, we want we want the, the Pats and the Red Sox to bring in pay what it takes yeah. to get the absolute best, so we can have a championship team. Why don't we do that for the T? Yeah. So then what? What I mean. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we have these challenges where you know we have uh, what is it? We have we have people picking at picking at wages as being one of the biggest uh, biggest things that they want to cut from the T. Right. How do we how do we navigate that issue? Is do we do you have any advice for us on that? Yeah. No. It's it's a great question. Yeah. And and so, but unfortunately, I, I think we as a society are, are, are bipolar in this respect. Um, 
you know, the highest paid state employee in Massachusetts, I believe, is the UMass basketball coach, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the second or third highest paid is maybe the, the UMass football coach. I mean, and it's interesting you use the sports metaphor, right? And so I think for, you know, for sort of entertainment purposes, I guess we're willing to pay whatever it takes. But for hard-nosed jobs like, you know, and, and not even running the team, put that aside, because I actually think um, that's not the issue. Um, but for, you know, public servants, real public servants, uh, for some reason, they're the ones that get squeezed and, and pushed all the time. And, and for the one or two that might be um, uh, generously paid, uh, you know, they're held up as the poster person for all uh, government employees. So, um, you know, I was in the middle of it um, when Dan Grabowskis left the MBTA. There was a big fight about his pay. Um, I think he was being compensated uh, maybe around $250,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agreed to take the job to run the T at, I think, 145. Yeah, it was 145. Um, but, you know, I did that for a couple of reasons. Number one, just personal circumstances allowed for that. Uh, two, uh, to me, it was an opportunity, you know, of a lifetime to run a system that I loved. Um, and and it's, it, it can't be about the money. I mean, you have to make enough to, you know, serve, you know pay your mortgage and, and feed your kids and all that, of course. Um, and, and you can do that on $145,000, by the way, in Massachusetts. Can you um, really? Yeah, I think you can. Um, and so I had to get rid of my kids. No, I'm kidding. I, I don't have kids. Um, they, they roam on the team. The, and they're yeah, fine. Yeah. They're eating other people's lunches. Yeah. Um, no, but you, you can do that. I think the point, though, and so for the right. top job, right, I think for the top job, running the T, being CEO of Massport, you know, the people that you can attract to run those kinds of systems are not in it for the money. You know, they're either, um, you know, they're either, you know, transit professionals who love transportation. They're uh, folks who see the T as, you know, an opportunity to progress their own career. Or maybe they're, you know, sort of semi-retired and, and have life experience. Like, you know, Brian Shortsley, for example, is the administrator for the MBTA. He has no transportation experience. He's a really smart guy coming from a business and private equity background. And, um, you know, and it just... And I had a had chance to talk to him. I mean, he's just in a position in his life where he can, you know, take the pay cut and and, and work his tail off. Um, he believes in, you know, he's friends with Governor Baker and believes in what the governor's trying to do and is is doing a really good job over there. Um, but it's not about the top; it's about the folks kind of in the middle, right? We were about to get that, all right. Yeah. And so, to me, and and I raised the salaries of the management team. Um, uh, a couple of times. One, because the team, management team at the T hadn't had a raise in seven years. Seven years when I got there, which, by the way, encouraged most of the management team to unionize. So 95% of the workforce, including management, is unionized as a result, right? Because they weren't treated fairly, mostly political. They hadn't had a performance management system. I think most managers are writing their own performance management system. We changed that when I was there. So you're rewarding good behavior, and then you're you know, providing constructive feedback or otherwise encouraging people to move on. And by the way, and I'm going to say this, you know, there were some challenges on race and gender too. Um, You know, there were folks who were clearly qualified who were being left behind. And so that was another piece that needed to be addressed. Transportation has largely been a white guy's, you know, business for the last 200 years. And the T has not been an exception in that regard. Now, it's, it's much more diverse. I think the pay equity issues are better. They still need to be worked on, particularly for women. Um... And so you, you saw some of that as well. But the middle management, right, 
really, really important. And I'm going to bring it down even further. I think, you know, you saw this in the green line a little bit where, you, you know, you've got, you don't, I mean, you have some good managers there, but not a real deep bench, which I think is one of the challenges we've seen come out of the green line extension problem. And then rail vehicle engineering, buying buses and trains is even a more specialized. And so, you know, the red and orange line car procurement right now, um, you know, it is got to be a focus of the MBTA because a lot of that expertise typically leaves and goes to work at consulting firms that pay them a lot more. Right. And so getting good qualified people in those kinds of positions, I think you can get good managers, you know, GMs that can kind of come and go. I think right. that's not a problem. It's the technical expertise that you need in that organization to keep it running. Yeah. That's where you need to be appropriately competent. Because yeah. I, I remember I was sitting at a, a mass dot. Uh, board meeting a couple of a uh, couple of years ago, uh, and I think this was during your tenure, that uh, it came up that why somebody asked on the somebody from the board asked uh, why are we why are we paying two million dollars to to a contractor I think it uh, for for the knowledge corridor to design the signal signal systems for that and and the the the, the simple answer that the project manager gave was uh, we simply cannot pay competitive wages to retain that talent to not only hire that talent but then to retain that talent especially as compared to what the company that we're hire that we're contracting from is currently paying them right so uh, and these are highly you know. technical i mean i think what people you know the average person thinks oh it's just a driving a bus and anyone can do that well you know first of all not everyone can do that but but <laughs> secondly yes i understand that there are positions within the mbta that require a different uh maybe not as a sophisticated <clears throat> skill set right but there are some – I mean, look, you don't want any Joe Schmo designing your signal system, right? You don't want any Joe Schmo figuring out the track geometry to make sure the red line is running. These are really highly technical jobs, and people can get, as you said, you know, high-paid consulting gigs and, frankly, work uh, 9 to 5 and not have the phone ring at 3 a.m. and say, hey, we have a derailment in Lynn, and you get on, and, and it's Christmas Eve, and you got to go up there. So it's um, – it's a challenge for not just the T. It's a challenge for other transit agencies around the country, by the way, uh, as well. Yeah, is this relevant up in uh, with, with some things like the Green Line extension, with the the um, design and construction mm-hmm. aspect? Of it? I mean, I, it seems to me that there's been a lot of talk of you know what went wrong. You know, did the did the T have you know some people say the T had poor management of it, and other people say well the you know the contractors were were um, essentially cheating the T. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have thoughts on? And is this is this, a, this is this tied in, or is this something else? Yeah, no, I've reflected on it because obviously I was there for a large part of getting at least the Green Line extension uh, off the ground. Um, I think it's part of the story in the Green Line that the management team is very good, but the depth. I mean, you know, there's just not a lot of bench there in the design and construction, and they have lots of projects going on. At any given one moment, right? Working on the red line, um, uh, track issues with uh, the Longfellow Bridge, and getting government center T station done. I mean, they've had a lot of work the last several years, um, but it's a place where the staff have continually retired, have been whittled down. You know, there are a couple of the challenges of the Green Line. Clearly, the the contracting method. Um, I actually think, um, you know, we shouldn't give up on it. Certainly here we should, but um, the T was clearly not ready from an internal capacity to understand what this new contracting method was. I think three, you're absolutely right. Some of the contractors who were building uh, were extremely clever um, and trying to use um, the maybe the newness or naivete of management to um, pad their pockets. But then four, you know, 
the T hired a lot of oversight contractors to help them. And I, my question is, where were they? Uh, you know, we knew we didn't have the internal expertise, so we went outside and hired, you know, external assistants, um, program managers, um, consultants who looked at budgets. Uh, and by the way, the Federal Transit Administration also looked at the budget too and signed off. So there were a lot of people that said, "Hey, this can be built for under you know one one point nine billion dollars." What changed, you know, in, in the six months or years time? I just don't know. But clearly, there are lessons learned that it can be applied. I think across the MBTA, which is your point, and I think that there are some issues that are are, are solely related to the Green Line itself. I'm going to dive back quickly into communications. Sure. Uh, the because uh, cust- communications and customer services because that was actually one of the things that you and I worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I worked with you more than anything else. No, you actually produced stuff. Yeah. I just said go do it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, that I mean that was that was really interesting. The fact that uh, I mean uh, when we went to transportation camp in D.C. and actually I was in a session with. Uh, uh, with Bev Scott, sure. uh, she made a surprise uh, appearance there, and and um, one of the things that that came to mind was uh, tactical urbanism, and but also yeah. built fac- uh, facilitating that relationship with the general manager, and uh, and then just kind of thinking a little bit more about communications and customer mm-hmm. services processes, internal organizational issues. What what were some of the? Cha- I'm, I'm actually curious because I never got a chance mm-hmm. to follow up on on how you how you untangled the 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 challenge of the service advisory. Because mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of background for some folks, uh, if you. Um, if you haven't gone back to the to the very very beginning of our blog, go go back to two thousand to the post in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I there's a blog post in there about how um, I got really upset on one commute when I discovered that the MBTA was communicating to people through seat drops. Uh, this was uh, this was when they would take uh, the press releases and then they would copy paste them into paper, pieces of paper that they would photocopy and then. Just dump onto train seats, which then they would have to clean up, of course, after the fact. Oh right? no! Which uh, is after hardly the first, brilliant. Mm-hmm. after like the first or second run of the day, uh, and I, I was, I guess, lucky enough to be one of those people who had to be on the one of the first runs because my commute at the time. So uh, I designed a service advisory and so on and so forth. Based on, I basically stole the New York City subway design at the time. Borrowed it. Uh, I, in, it's heavy inspiration. So and then and then that was actually one of the first times that I met you back. Uh, I, I think it was Josh Josh Robin who is now working over at Masabi. Uh, he uh, you he put me in contact uh, with with you, and then I was invited to the to the roundtable. And one of the first things I said was, "We need service advisories because nobody n- my generation certainly doesn't know." Because I'm getting my news from the free magazine, from Twitter, which you guys weren't on at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did how did that get untangled? What what are what were the challenges then, and sure. what what are the challenges now to just kind of communicating with passengers? in a way that's effective that makes them feel like they're you're not you know the MBT is not lying to them. Yeah, there's an old quote. I don't know if it was Thomas Jefferson or something, but it, re- it reminded me of a quote that he he said something like uh or there go my people. I must go lead them. And I <laughs> I think that's a part of the challenge with government is, you know, is consumers, the public, the voters, in this instance T riders were ahead of the T. And so, you know, when you talk about social media for example, absolutely. We were not using Twitter, we were not using social media as a way to get information out to our customers about whether it be proactively, you know, we're doing this good thing, we're doing that, or, or, hey, you know what, we have this breakdown, beware. Um, 
But your point, I mean, so the service advisor you're talking about is is like a basic 18th, 19th century way to communicate with people, which is, you know, a sign. And rather than these crazy seat drops that nobody looked at, they just tossed them aside, um, you know, you designed a pretty uh, attractive, cool, you know, uh, signage that the T still uses today. Uh, that gets information out to people. That's the cogent information that's not in T-speak. Uh, we have a signal, and we have the frog, and we've got this rail issue. Like, What does that mean? How is my commute impacted? And when is it going to be impacted? And what should I do if, if it's going to be impacted? It's very basic information. So I think that was very helpful. Fundamentally, though, I think that um, we, did, we did two things. One is we, I think, hyper-listened to people which is, you know, the roundtables you talked about. Um, one of the first things I did when I was GM, uh, I took the senior staff of the T out, and we visited train stations every two or three weeks during rush hour, not like at 2 o'clock when no one's there, but at rush hour with a clipboard. How are things going? What can we be doing? And we got some great ideas from people um, that we implemented. Um, and then finally, you know, and I, I say this I, I just, just straight up, you know, I think with me and some other senior managers taking the tea all the time and just experiencing it as a customer, right? I mean, it, it's it becomes pretty damn obvious that a countdown sign would be really nice, right? <laughs> or go figure, right? Exactly. Or you know, giving people you know open data, so we're not developing an app that takes like eight years and it's four billion dollars over budget or something. Let's just give let's just give the information to people who are a lot smarter than us for free and let them figure it out. And it was, as you know, wildly successful, right? So we were the first transit agency in the U.S. to put out um, our open our open data. Um, I love this other story on the on the red line. So you know, prior to me arriving, there was some countdown information. Uh, train approaching, train arriving, right? So that was that was helpful. But people still are anxious about, well, how long is it taking? What does that mean? Particularly in intervals. And so we worked hard to get that information up. And before we put the countdown sign up on the red line, we did a not a statistical, um, you know, small sample survey of customers. How long did they think they were waiting on the platform? And customers on average uh, estimated that the time was twice their experience was actually twice as long as what they were waiting. So if they thought they were waiting 10 minutes, it was really five minutes. And then when we put the signs up, we asked for people uh, about their satisfaction. It went up like 58% or something. We didn't prove service at all. All we did was tell people how long they were waiting. And so the and finally, I think then convincing the the kind of folks who have been around the T for a long time, who had been conditioned not, not to give anybody information, <laughs> like, well, we can't tell them that they're delayed – like well, no, they know they're delayed. I mean, <laughs> whether we tell them us, or not, it make us. It might make us look, look bad, bad if the trains exactly are delayed. Right. Like no, no, they know. The <laughs> press knows. The customers yeah. know. And when the train doesn't come, that means they're delayed. So let's yeah. be forward. Let's be you know. When there's good news, let's put the good news out. When there's bad news, because people don't pers- uh, people do not expect perfection. They don't, but they do expect you to be honest with them. And a countdown sign is that. It's you know, consistent honesty about how long they're going to wait. I know there's been some recent controversy about that with the Green Line, uh, specifically with respect mm-hmm. to the the, uh, the countdown clocks because they're yeah. not they're not 
minutes. They're, <laughs> they're not minutes because they don't want. I, I think it's mixed I, actually, depending on the station. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah because there's the a certain station. certain level of consistency that you can give to that. So right, right. I have, I have a question. I'm interested in the communication and marketing aspects. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. And you know, you you just talked a, a bit about about the communication aspects. Um, it, it seems to me that that there is not just a lack of communication with riders, but also uh, a lot of times when there is when there is a problem, uh, whatever it may be, the T sort of seems to kind of almost almost apologize for it, and almost be like, you know, we're sorry, we'll do better, and it's kind of the idea that like, you know we have to make it work what we have, and they they don't seem to do a very good job of kind of of sort of advocating for for what we need to you know okay yeah this is yes the red line is overcrowded and instead of saying you know instead of saying oh yeah we're sorry we'll do better you know with the red line but it's say okay well we're at capacity we need resources like this is what it takes is, is that is yeah. that just something that i'm seeing or is that no i think you're uh, you're spot on i think part of the challenge can be political right mm-hmm. and so um hey the red line's broken down we're so sorry we need two billion dollars i mean you know then that shifts Please. the conversation <laughs> to somebody else right yeah. uh, legislature the governor and you know, they may not be ready to have that kind of conversation, for example. Um, so, but, but I think um, on decision-making, the T should, I, I hope has, um, at least in the past, and should continue to be uh, more descriptive about why they make decisions. So, for example, shutting down government center T station for two years, um, you know, was a controversial decision. I made it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew it was going to save us something like $25 million, and I knew if we didn't, there was no way that project would come in on schedule. Um, like, look at State Street. You know, the State Street rehab took seven years, I think, and was like, you know, seven well, – it wasn't seven. It was tens of millions of dollars over budget, uh, but they kept the station open. And it, it's just a recipe for, for disaster. You, you just can't work at a good pace when you've got tens of thousands of people – you know, walking around an active construction site it just doesn't make any sense. So rip the bandaid off. Let's get it. Let's get it done. And and we you know we explain that decision. Here are our choices. We can save money. We can get this thing done on time, and it will be done on time. It's going to open in March, and that was the the schedule. Or you know we can do this other thing, and it's probably going to take more time. And so again, I think to your point, it's maybe not in the real time. It's harder to do. Hey, we have a signal problem or this or that. But when we make big decisions, here's why we made this big decision. Um, and, you know, you may agree or disagree, yeah. but at least people say, okay, well, at least I know why they made the decision. It's a rational reason. Cool. Well, uh, and looking at your experience working uh, at both uh, MBCR and, and working at the, at the T, something we've talked a lot about is, is better utilizing our resources mm-hmm. and, and taking advantage of the fact that we have a commuter rail network that goes underutilized, and there's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, I think, opportunities to... to, to you know, reallocate some of the buses that we use. The buses that are always packed from uh, from uh, from Forest Hills to Roslindale. Can you talk about you know what you think some of the some of the barriers are and how we can start that conversation about you know um, things like um, rationalizing the fare and expanding you know Zone One A and and hopefully getting some more frequency at least in the in the inner inner stations on commuter rail. Sure, sure, absolutely, and so. Um, you know, I, I, we definitely did start that conversation um, a couple of years ago on, on the fair rationalization, for example. So we'll look at the Fairmont line, right? So the Fairmont line is the only commuter rail line in the system that uh, is entirely within the city of Boston, right? That ends in uh, Reedville. Um, and so 
you know, the question then is, you know, there's some equity issues there. People are paying more to use the commuter rail, but uh, frankly, if you get on a Braintree, you know, the, the fare is, 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 is the same on the subway whether you get on a Braintree downtown crossing the red line, but yet you're getting on commuter rail within the city of Boston, and, and there's some and, – and, and there are communities, by the way, up and down that corridor that frankly need some of that relief. And so we try to rationalize um, that um, a couple of years ago. I think that's still in place, which is it should be the cost of a, of a subway uh, pass. Yeah. Um, two is, you know, the T's made a significant investment in that corridor, uh, whether it be the new stations, uh, the new track, uh, there are new bridges out there. Um, there's a lot of good stuff, which I think is actually prompting, you know, the city of Boston and, and some developers to now make some housing investments along that corridor. It strikes me that that, and if you could live, you know, in Dorchester and Roxbury and Reedville Hyde Park and be, you know, 18 minutes on a one-seat ride to South Station, or, you know, switched into the Silver Line from the five-minute ride to, like, the hottest, you know, sort of job centers in the city. That's a pretty attractive place to build, you know, housing, to build, um, you know, opportunities for folks, and then to get them into the city. You know, we proposed in our 10-year way forward plan uh, diesel uh, multiple units, so so DMUs, which is, you know, for folks who don't know, basically subway-like <coughs> cars and service on commuter rail, smaller cars that are uh, – uh, self-propelled exactly yeah. so no locomotive you can have one or two cars or three cars you don't need these big hulking you know cars that are empty and thus you're wasting mileage yeah. um and you can run more frequent service uh to your point um and, and there are some uh jurisdictions in the united states that are using that technology again that's all about money um and making that investment um uh, going forward but it's clear that you know one of the strategies for the t has to be um you know creatively looking at um, expanding current capacity, but then looking to your question, where is their undercapacity? And the Fairmont Corridor is a place. Um, there are some other bus services. Uh, there's certainly commuter rail service in some locations. You know, can you look at um, unique pricing um, at parking lots, for example, to drive up? You know, reducing or making it even zero to drive up um, ridership, and you know, all those things have to be in the mix. The challenge the T has always had, though is that they've been under such pressure to raise revenue that the creative kind of pricing structures that might ultimately lift communities, it might not increase revenue, but might lift communities, has always been kind of shunned. And so that's why, um, you know, only recently has there been a movement to, you know, have the youth pass, for example, which is, you know, a great idea that's being piloted right now. Um, But that's costing the T revenue. And so the challenge I think the T has always had is, you know, there are outside forces saying, hey, don't, you know, your revenue is, is a top priority. The revenue should not be a top priority. It's, it should be a priority. It's all about getting people around safely and efficiently. Um, you know, and, and this maybe also goes to the governance question, too. You know, Boston is unique in some respects in that the transit agency is not under the authority of the mayor, right? And so I think the city of Boston and, and some of the other jurisdictions, you know, Cambridge and Somerville and others, um, you know, it's a little bit more of horse trading um, among the parties as opposed to saying, hey, you know, our 10-year, 20-year plan for housing in the city of Boston, for example, uh, is to grow, um, you know, the neighborhoods of Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan along the Fairmont Carter or along Blue Hill Avenue. And so what are the kinds of things we can bring together uh, to make that happen? One last point on this is, you know, I think a place where this is beginning to have a, a good conversation in terms of resources is value capture. And so this concept 
which is not done here at all in other parts of the world it is, we're getting the, the localities to help creatively finance through the development that happens around T-stations, um, you know, can contribute to those uh, operations and offset some of the capital costs. So the the um, Green Line is a perfect example. Mayor Carter Tone and the city of Somerville are actually putting in some money into the Green Line extension because he knows that it's good for Somerville as well in terms of a tax base. So I think more creative solutions like that um, is the way to go in the future. Yeah. Well, even more than that, it's it's. I mean, they've banked some of their development program, their their city city development plan on the Green Line on at Union Square sure. and all of these other places. So yeah, it's it's. Uh, He's, yeah, it's it's good. It, I'm glad that he's going uh, going all in on that because that's. How do we get better you know. cooperation with the municipalities, though? Because a lot of times, you know, we see yeah. we see Mayor Curtitoni in Somerville as an, as an example of somebody who's been you know very forthright and very um, very publicly saying how how transit is important. He's um, an outlier. We we don't so much see the same from the city of Boston. Which yeah, but the mayor didn't even mention transportation in his state of the city address on the yeah. same day that there was that incident with the uh the blue line having to get shuttle bust and then people like hundreds of people waiting on state street yeah well more importantly he mentioned he mentioned the 10 feet of snow but not the oh. MTA delays. <laughs> yeah. so. and 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 you know we've we've seen how how important this is and um but there's a lot that can be done with the municipality sure. so sure. so when when mayor mayor joe in somerville says <laughs> says you know we the transit is so important you know and and then but the cities don't take the next step and the MBTA doesn't seem to have really anybody to work with them and how do we sort of overcome that issue so we look at things sure. like transit priority or funding or whatever yeah so uh, you know a few things I think number one um, it, it's a control question and a responsibility question right so you know and I should say Mayor Walsh and before him Mayor I mean, you know worked very closely with us on a, on a number of projects um, you know to move the MBTA uh, the MBTA forward I know Mayor Menino in particular I think you know, lobbied a number of legislators to make sure that, um, you know, they were adding more resources into the MBTA. He came and actually testified at one of those 32 fair hearings I mentioned at the Boston Public Library, he being Mayor Menino at the time. Um, so there's definitely, I think a guy like Joe Curtitone really understands that to move his community forward in a big way. I and mean, he's a pretty big visionary anyways. You know, there's very little, as you as you guys know, uh, and has been very little transit in the city of Somerville, only Davis Square, right? Um, it's one of the most densely populated cities in America, um, and it has really poor access to transit. And so the Green Line extension, the Orange Line, I mean, he alone, I think, was probably the, um, you know, the dog with a bone. He'd get make sure that that Assembly Square T station was done. He, again, being Mayor Curtitone. Um, I think he sees the real value in, in, in transit. I think for some other municipalities, it's a few things. One is, you know, they really don't hear it from their constituents. Two, they don't want to be responsible for it. So the more they talk about it, the more it's linked with them. And, you know, they don't have a lot of oversight. You know, a lot of cities and towns do contribute to the T's budget, usually in a pretty modest way. Um, but I think there's more opportunity to uh, to do that. And I think, you know, one of the challenges we have in Massachusetts is, um, and again, I say respectfully, is getting municipalities to think regionally. Home right? rule. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think that's now happening, yeah. right? I think particularly yeah. Mayor Walsh has been reaching out to some of his colleagues across the river and down 93 to say, let's, how do we think regionally? And, and, and we, that means we need a regional transportation system. Right. And so rather than project by project, hey, I'd like this thing in my town, I'd like this thing in my city, you know, how does a... Um, you know, how did redline cars really lift, you know, a community? And I have to say, I, I didn't hear 
you know, a lot of mayors who live up and down the red line, you know, chasing me on red line cars. But I did hear them, you know, asking for things within their own community. So I think, you know, having that kind of regional leadership uh, emerge is how you get municipalities to work more closely. Right. Um, you know, with the MBTA. So. Did, you, did you have any mayors offering you signal priority in their busy intersections or bus bulb outs? Yeah, because that's what we're looking at. We're yeah. better, you yeah. know, better bus stations. The, the, the system sure. things that would help the whole network yeah. really yeah. often are, are in the possession of the municipalities. The T can't sure. really do a lot about that crowded corridor no. if they don't have a bus lane <laughs> well, or sig- a queue jump or sig- something like signal that. Signal prioritization was definitely a controversial one because, you know, the city or town is ceding control of a traffic light to the T. And, and, and so there's... There's definitely, uh, and the, the, by the way, the city has done that as of late. I know they're they're piloting, uh, I think, on the server line down in the Seaport District, some improved. Also, queuing. so we've heard. Um, oh, yeah, we've heard about that. We've also okay. Also, maybe, <laughs> maybe in reality, it's a little different in terms of invitation. Yeah. But but yeah. I know that that's you know occurring. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we're talking a lot about the T, but just broadening right. transportation in particular. You know, the the cities I think have done a really amazing job at taking a leadership role in uh, bicycling around the city, right? So the bike share program uh, was funded with a federal grant, uh, DOT, um, you know, as secretary, I supported it tremendously with um, planning and financing. Um, And so, you know, the T, even if we have it totally fixed, is not going to solve every transportation challenge we have. There's the last mile issues. There's a whole host of, you know, other challenges it has. And so I think there are other areas where cities and towns and the T or MassDOT have worked really well and closely together, too. Much more so than I think I've seen, um, you know, in the past. But to your point, look, there are other controversial things in cities as well. I mean, the T, and and unfortunately, I couldn't get it done, but hopefully, maybe this this group can. Um, you know, bus depots are not the most popular thing in neighborhoods, right? There was that uh, Bartlett Yard in Roxbury for years was a huge challenge. Uh, that was finally moved allegedly temporarily for in 2000 for a few years to the Arbor Way. Seven, Arbor Way. Yeah. 16 years later, it's still there mm-hmm. uh, and not funded. And that community is not happy, rightfully so. Um, but there is not the kind of funding that needs to occur. And so, you know, there are those kinds of challenges as well where the T should could be, and in the past not necessarily has been, a good neighbor. Um, and, you know, that hasn't helped either. So I think... The T can be a better neighbor, and I think municipalities can think about um, less control and more about, okay, how do we solve the problem together? We've got about 10 minutes left, and I wanted to to bring up two last topics if we're able to address them. Uh, The first one is um, we continue to be fascinated by whether or not uh, there's any possibility for the North-South Rail Link. And I know that you were involved in some of the negotiations with the the Postal Service, and maybe you can offer – so this is the first thing. Maybe you can offer some insight about uh, – what the delay is on the ah. Postal Service's side, and if you have any you know, ideas about what's going on there, um, sure. without necessarily, I think we've belabored a lot of the what we believe the merits of the, of the project would be um, as, as far as doing North or South Rail Link instead of uh, South Station expansion. And the other issue that I wanted uh, to be able to address before we get done tonight is late night service um, mm-hmm. pilots. Sure. And you know that was one of the things we were all very hopeful about when it launched. It seems all but a fait accompli that it's not going to be going forward. And, you know, one of the disappointing things is I saw in the paper this morning that only 55 people – so this is at the, FM, the, the, the FMCB meeting yesterday, I guess they said, well, only 55 people came to our hearings. Our sure. Only hearings. 55. And I thought, well, there's not really – it's not really possible to have a hearing that's in a, a convenient time for people who for the people who de- depend depend on, on the late <laughs> night service, right? Because they're right. probably sleeping, or, or they're, they're getting taking a shower and getting ready to go to work at late late at night. And this is one of yeah. these things with this pilot program: thirteen million 
Now it's, I guess it's 14 million now to keep it going. And it's like, we can't find $14 million uh, in this system. That's crazy. And of course it's, you know, there's no money for it because it's a pilot program. We didn't, we didn't budget for the future. So those are the two topics. So I'll start with the second one then first. Of course you can find $14 million. It's all about priorities. It is all about priorities. And so, you know, the question, I mean, you know, a few questions. And so, yes, um, we found money um, for a one-year pilot with both some sponsorships, which I think totaled about a million dollars in cash or in-kind donations. And then the T had some additional savings um, and additional revenue that we applied to the pilot. And it was over a, you know, it was actually over two fiscal years. And so while it was a one-year pilot, you could actually, uh, you know, have surplus and some other new revenues from two uh, fiscal years. So that's how we are able to, to, to pull it off. You know, the question really is um, – it's so interesting, you know, how many people show up or this or that. Um, you know, transit can't be solely measured by how many people show up or how many people are using the system. It, 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 because if if we did that, uh, we would be shutting down lots of bus lines and shutting down lots of things, right? Um, and by the way, some of it probably should be shut down, but where there may be other alternatives to provide people with transportation services other than what the T can do. Um, but uh, late night service, look, it was it was not marketed too heavily. Um, as near as I can tell, the T did not go back out and seek additional sponsorships. My point is this. It was not a priority, it seems to me. And maybe I could be proven wrong. But if, um, you know, you wonder – if it was just left to be a slow death because it was, uh, you know, a priority for the previous administration and, and not a priority now. Now, what the team might say is, well, we've got this fiscal crisis and maybe we can revisit it in a couple of years. Or maybe what they're saying today is, look, there may be a different model. You know, we cannot provide this service economically, but maybe there's a privatized model that could do this, um, you know, bus service and whatnot. I mean, that might be interesting. But you're looking at me skeptically, but I think all of those things, you know, should be on the table <laughs> as opposed to, well, we can't run how we do it right now, and that's it. So we have to we have to kill it. There are other solutions I think that are available that aren't being availed of. Your first question, which was what? No, I forget. North South Railing. North South Railing. Oh, I was trying yeah, with, to what's it. happening and with the post office. I was trying to forget it. And with the post office, yeah. So I will first of all go on the record um, and just be completely candid with you all, as you know I am. Uh, I was never a big fan of the North South Rail Link. Um, I have not seen um, a a economic study or a ridership study which would, putting aside the cost, which is enormous, justify um, uh, you know spending the sort of time and resources on the project. You know, I ran commuter rail for eighteen months. I was there for seven years. Um, this idea that commuter rail operating costs are going to be significantly reduced as a result of the north-south rail link, it's just not true. Um, it's just not true. Um, yes, the T's main maintenance facility for commuter rail is in the north side, and two-thirds of the fleet is on the south side. Um, but purchasing the CSX line, you know, the, the, the BU uh, graffitied bridge, uh, railroad bridge through Cambridge, you know, the T owns that now, and it's very easy and fairly cost-efficient to move equipment back and forth to the extent you need to. Um, Beacon Park Yard out in Austin-Brighton will be a layup layover facility, presumably for the T in the future. So uh, the logistics that are, are described, um, I just don't buy. Um, I haven't seen a ridership uh, study either. I actually think that if the north-south rail link happens, it's not an intercity 
it, it's an intercity question, not an intercity question. So you need federal dollars. You need Amtrak to step up. Right. And, you know, that's just not a priority for them at all. On the South Station, I mean, on the, on the post office question, so I actually think even if you do the North-South Rail Link, you need to expand South Station. Why? Because um, I, am not, I am not convinced that um, a significant – well, first of all, Amtrak has significant designs to increase – uh, high-speed rail uh, along the corridor. And um, South Station is going to be a major destination. Even if you did the North-South Rail Link, South Station is going to be a major destination uh, for um, high-speed rail. And the inn is basically full. South Station is basically full during the rush hours in terms of track space. There are only 13 tracks there. Um, so that's one challenge. I think, two, if you're going to want to expand commuter rail in the future or DMU service, for that matter, up and down the Fairmont corridor, you're going to need additional space to berth the trains. Again, even if their final destination is North Station. But today, today, um, you know, you can ask customers how often have they sat outside of South Station waiting for a track to open up, and it's not insignificant. There is a big challenge there. Talking, Speaking from a guy who used to sit up in the – called the train master booth in the evenings in rush hour and watch the great choreography it is to get trains in and out. And as you guys also probably know, these are not all interchangeable, right? Worcester, the Worcester line is on tracks one and two. It can't go over to track 13. So if you have a problem with a Worcester line train, it, it, you are constrained in how it's laid out naturally. Um, on the post office, so the post office's position is, hey, we're happy here. Don't move us. We're happy here. Why move us? Well, it's good for Massachusetts. Yeah, that's not really a compelling factor for us. We're happy here, unless you pay us a lot of money. And so, you know, we were pretty darn close. I mean, if you were to ask me what is the, you know, one thing I regret not getting done as transportation secretary, I would say that was it because we were pretty darn close, I think, before I left. And I know it's a big priority of Governor Baker, so I'm hopeful um, that the the governor – uh, obviously, with the fiscal challenges, can still nonetheless maybe push that as perhaps his legacy project because I think it's a great project for South Station. It's not just about expansion, too, but it's also about reactivating Four Point Channel, opening up Dorchester Avenue, maybe just for pedestrian and bicycle, you know, really activate the channel area and have some significant development. But if you look at the Amtrak's long-term plan, if you think about uh, you know DMU service up the Fairmont Carter, if you think about other commuter rail services that could be offered – you know, in the future, um, you know, to Springfield, uh, potentially to Hopedale, you know, you could expand the Franklin line. There are things you could do. You absolutely need to expand South Station, in my opinion. If you want to do the North-South Rail Link, that's fine. If you had all of them on the world, absolutely. But I think in this day and age, you have to look at the prioritization and say, okay, you know, what's the return on the investment? And look, the return on the investment is probably not going to make the T money. There's no transit project that's going to make anybody money. But what improvements to the customers are going to be. And certainly the missing link to North Station, I get. But if that's what we're trying to solve for, getting people from South Station and North Station, is there a better, more cost-effective way to do it than building the North-South mm-hmm. railing? If we're trying to get people to Maine, that's a different question, um, or Rockport. Um, I'm not sure that the ridership between Situ and Rockport's there. Uh, but certainly there's you know the, the number one hubway route right, the bicycle route in all the city of Boston is North and South Station. So there's clearly a need there. The question is, is how do you solve it? And so maybe what you do as a, as a compromise to the North-South Rail Link is say, look, let's study all the options. Let's be honest with ourselves and say, um, you know, we're solving for this problem, and so let's study all the options as a result. Cool. 
I, that that's a fascinating response, and I think that um, I think you've you've earned yourself an invitation back because we have lots of people that would like to talk more about that topic, and especially. I love that you have rail operations background, um, despite being an attorney, um, because that there's so many things we can talk about with someone who has had you know that experience with the NBCR. Sure. Because regional rail is such a huge topic for us for opening up regional and north south connections and sure. all, all the problems that we have with the north south divide in, in, in Boston. Boston S Bond. Right. And so, if you would, if you um, you know. If you would love to start, like to start, uh, you know, a, comp- a competitor uh, regional rail agency, uh, I'd be all for it. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I guess we'll have to not. work. <laughs> you know, as I always say, in some respects, it doesn't matter who runs it. It, it matters what they're running. And yeah. so if you gave me new locomotives and new coaches, I'd be happy to run the service. But um, And new bridges and new rail, I'd be happy to do it. We'll but. get you some of the DMUs that they're using up on the Pearson Express in Toronto. Perfect. So. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you, Rich, so much. Uh, this has really been a pleasure. Very informative uh, conversation. I know I'm going to listen to it again uh, after it comes out, which I uh, don't normally do. So, <laughs> um, so those, are, those, of you, those of you uh, listening. An admission against interest, I think we would call that in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- those of you listening, uh, you should follow us. Uh, check us out online at transitmatters.info uh, for more news and everything else. And go to Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, and YouTube, and some other stuff. And Email us, feedback at transitmatters.info. We'd like to hear from you, and we'll try to share some of that soon. Well, I just want to thank you guys. I mean, oh, having you. sat in the seat for five years, um, you know, what you do and what your listeners do matter. People listen to, you know, intelligent opinions that are coming at them frequently. So don't feel as though, um, you know, what you're doing isn't making a difference because it certainly is. You know, the, the small example you gave of the, you know, of the um, the advisory that w- the T now still uses today um, shows that, you know, one, two, four, five, ten organized people around a thing they care about can actually impact. So yeah. um, congratulations to you guys, and, and I look forward to coming back. Thank you. And once again, as I said, please visit transitmatters.info where you can get involved. And please remember that we are an all-volunteer organization in a, in a time of, uh, you know, when the MBTA is uh, cutting their budget, uh, you know, so is everyone else. So if you can support us or volunteer, please do so. Uh, and you can find all that information at transitmatters.info as well. And uh, Twitter and Facebook are other ways to get in touch with us. And uh, thank you for being involved and engaged. And if you have not yet submitted comments on the any number of uh, things to submit comments on, uh, lately, whether that be the fares, the late night service, the Green Line extension, commuter rail, or anything else, um, now there is a proposal for privatization. Please send those comments in. Uh, you can find more about that on the MBTA's website, mbta.com. And if you're unsure of uh, what a sensible position is, you can check out our website where we have all of that posted and more. And feel free to send it to us so that we can share it around and uh, you know reach out to other people as well. Uh, a couple of things we have upcoming. We have an interview with Senator Will Brownsberger, uh, state senator representing uh, various parts of Boston, as well as, I believe, Watertown and uh, maybe Newton. I'm not sure. Uh, somewhere out at that west, uh, but including uh, most of the Green Line, I believe, in these weird gerrymandered districts. So that's coming up, as well as a number of other things that we're very excited about. So um, stay tuned and get involved.